0: Well, if there's anything that can drive home just how important judges and justices are, we got a big, sad, and even frightening reminder this past Friday. As you're probably aware, we lost Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg to pancreatic cancer. Ginsburg was 87 and had been a strong voice for justice and equality on the court since the 1990s. Not only was Justice Ginsburg a staunch defender of issues we care a lot about on this show, such as women's rights and civil liberties, but she played a critical role in a number of landmark cases that have shaped healthcare in the United States, from reproductive rights to healthcare access with the Affordable Care Act. We're going to miss Justice Ginsburg terribly, but the fight continues for the things she lived her life to defend. Oh, and if it isn't clear already, this is Prognosis Ohio. I'm your host, Dan Skinner. I mentioned the timeliness of talking about the importance of judges because on today's episode, part of our 2020 Candidate Series, we talk with Cheryl Munson, a veteran public defender who's running to be a judge on the Franklin County Court of Common Pleas. In this conversation, Cheryl and I connect the dots as to why we should think about what judges do as closely tied to many of the kinds of issues we encounter in health and healthcare, especially as concerns addiction and mental health, but also issues like domestic violence and guns. As you'll hear in the conversation, Cheryl has some pretty specific ideas about what makes a judge great, especially at a time when issues like the ongoing opioid crisis an economy and turmoil and stressors of all sorts are putting pressure on our relations, which necessarily lead to legal questions that have huge consequences for the lives of average Ohioans. While I'm on the subject of the election, I'd also be remiss if I didn't mention that you can still register online until October 5th when early voting begins. But also, and this is important, don't wait. Healthcare is on the ballot this fall in a big way. We've included links for registering and double checking your registration status in the show notes. As always, before turning to my conversation with Cheryl Munson, I'd like to remind you to subscribe to Prognosis Ohio wherever you get your podcasts and consider following us on Twitter and on other social media. If you have ideas for show themes or interviews, don't hesitate to email us at prognosisohio at gmail.com. Also, check out our new website at prognosisohio.com. And while you're checking out that new website, consider becoming a Prognosis Ohio patron for just $3 a month. Thanks so much to our new patrons, whose support is helping to defray the cost of SoundCloud and a few other programs one needs to get a podcast out there, but also to take on special features like this candidate series and also the live event we're planning for October 22nd. So mark that down, October 22nd. We'd really appreciate it if a few more listeners could join this group of supporters so we can continue to grow the show. Visit patreon.com slash prognosisohio to chip in $3 a month to become a Prognosis Ohio Patreon. That's patreon.com slash prognosisohio. And thanks. Cheryl Munson grew up in Marion, Ohio, before moving to Columbus over 30 years ago. She's a graduate of The Ohio State University and The Ohio State University Moritz College of Law. She's worked in the Franklin County Public Defender's Office since 1994. Cheryl's also a member of the Ohio Association of Criminal Defense Attorneys, Women's Lawyers of Franklin County, Franklin County Democratic Lawyers Club, and the Franklin County Democratic Party. She's practiced mostly in Franklin County Common Pleas Court since 2000 and has successfully tried many different types of cases. I'd also like to add on something of a humorous note, uh, before we turn to the interview, that one of Cheryl's many qualifications for being a judge, in my view, aside from her extensive experience and training, is that she's an animal lover. So as you'll hear, we hear a bit from her African parrot during the interview. I just wanted to mention it because you're probably going to be wondering what that is. I figured it's best to just address the uh, proverbial parrot in the room and get that out of the way. Okay, now to my conversation with Cheryl Munson. Cheryl Munson, thanks so much for being on the show and taking some time to talk about your candidacy for judge in the Franklin County Court of Common Pleas.
1: Yes, thank you, Dan. Uh, Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: So you're an attorney um, and you've been with the Franklin County Public Defender Office for quite a while now, uh, since 1994. Do I have that right?
1: Yeah, that's correct. I started, um, so I went to undergrad at Ohio State, uh, law school at Ohio State. I became a law clerk. Uh, with the Franklin County Public Defender Office in my third year of law school, and transitioned um, as an attorney in the municipal unit, which is where they do misdemeanor work, lower-level crimes, and then for yeah. the last 21 years, I've been in common pleas, which is felony defense.
0: So you know, you're the first candidate for judge we've we, we've had on the show. We've talked to a bunch of different candidates for state office, for U.S. Congress, and we're going to keep doing these uh, right up until the election this year. But, you know, so we, we haven't really explored the way in which judges fit into the theme of this show, which is health and health care. You've also been a public defender uh, for 26 years, um, and, you know, I have a sense of where th- there might be some interesting intersections, but can you tell us a little bit about how you think that, you know, pressing issues that are health-related, wellness-related, mental health-related intersect with the kind of work you've done as a public defender?
1: Absolutely. So. Sort of to preface all of this, the thing is that as a public defender, of course, as a public defender, we do criminal defense for those that um, are considered, you know, under the poverty line in Franklin County or otherwise incarcerated individuals that cannot afford an attorney. And so we are dealing with underserved people from underserved, unserved, you know, marginalized communities. So as you can imagine, um, they uh, lack access uh, to all sorts of services, um, public health in particular. Um, so, you know, mental health services do not come easy for them. Uh, ad- addiction and treatment services and, and just basically, um, you know, health and, and welfare, you know, the well checks, dental work, um, all of those things do not come easily for them. So, Everything you know that I do, I come into the courtroom and I'm and I'm representing this person in a criminal matter. But there's so much um, other wraparound attention that needs to be given to them. You know, I have a client who, uh, you know, they lack transportation or uh, they don't want to surrender themselves to jail for their period of time because you know they need dental work or they need a surgery that they can't afford. And once they're in jail, um, they're not going to get that attention. And so. Obviously, you know, drug addiction and mental health is huge, are huge components of uh, my population of client and um, access to those treatments, obviously lacking for them, um, you know, because they just, you know, they're not insured. And unless they're already into the system uh, and the probation department's providing that service, they're just not getting it.
0: You and I don't know each other that well, but one of the things that I've I've worked on over the last year and a half is the opioid issue here in Ohio. And one of the things I learned in, in the course of going around and talking to people about this, and, you know, there are so many shocking things when you learn about how the law intersects with the culture, but was that there are people, parents in particular, who mm-hmm. are, are struggling with addiction, but are so afraid that the first thing that's going to happen is that their kids are going to get taken yeah. away. Yep. Yeah. They just hide. And we need to help those folks without it just being in that kind of a punitive framework. So that's another example that I've seen. I don't know if Absolutely. those kinds of things factor into the what you've seen as well.
1: Right. And, and obviously, our juvenile court sees a lot of that in terms of neglect and dependency cases with the parents. But Uh, the work that I do with the parents, you know, of course, is, um, you know, you may have a a single mother or or father, but often a single mother who's addicted and wants uh, services. But again, um, she has no child care. And then if she brings it to somebody's attention that she needs inpatient treatment, then of course, you know, who's going to intervene? Franklin County Children's Services is going to intervene. Uh, And, you know, she's going to lose placement of those children. And and obviously that's a huge concern. So, yeah, I mean, the punitive nature of drug addiction. And and, and first of all, we know that punishing drug addiction does not work. Um, It's not a motivating factor uh, to sobriety. You you know, it's just uh, incarcerating people because they're sick has not worked. And so fortunately, I think we're turning a corner uh, and seeing that we have got to create alternatives. And then it, for me in particular, my population that I'm working with now, alternatives that people uh, can access even if they're low income, uh, you know, and it can't afford those programs that other people might be able to afford.
0: So are there things that a judge, and I'm really asking this from genuine ignorance, <laughs> are there things that a judge in, in the Court of Common Pleas can do that can move more towards kind of a harm reduction or a, um, you know, a a public health model approach just in some cases, like how much can you bring that thinking to bear in your actual judicial work?
1: Well, in terms of lower level offenses, again, and we're talking about drug offenses, theft offenses, property offenses, which a lot of times are of course motivated um, by drug addiction there's a lot of flexibility, uh, on the bench. There's no mandatory sentencing. And in fact, uh, Franklin County has evolved into a model where treatment is, is the preferred uh, route, but, Mm -hmm. um, some individual judges, um, have not embraced that. Uh, and they, and they have this sort of, um, a client appears before them and, you know, they say, you know, take them over to the urine lab and drop urine. And if they're coming back with, you know, traces of THC or, uh, you know, opioid, you know, then we're going to lock them up. And and there you go again with your reference to then what happens to the children and uh, the apartment that they barely have, that rent needs to be paid. And, and so, uh, you know, as a judge, you've got to resist that urge that this is somehow um, – you know, that somehow the defendant or the client is, you know, thumbing their nose at the system. They're not, Um, you know, they're sick, they're in treatment. We know that relapse is part of recovery. So I think what the court can do is continue to be compassionate and persistent uh, in moving uh, people back into treatment, not, you you know, not punishing every relapse, uh, not incarcerating every relapse. Uh, which just sets a person back uh, e- even farther uh, in any progress they've made. So, yes, absolutely, particularly on low level felonies. Now, obviously, higher level offenses, um, you know, violent offenses or where someone's victimized, um, things become a little more dicey. But even then, um, you know, I think a restorative model of justice uh, benefits us all because, it, with very few exceptions, if you incarcerate someone, they're still coming back out. So the question is, mm-hmm. how do you want them to come back out? Do you want to come them to come back out healthy? Uh, y- you know, uh, with some kind of, um, I don't know, uh, redemption in their heart that they don't feel that they were just thrown away and and and, and mistreated, but uh, believed in and rehabilitated. And so, uh, again, restorative justice. We we just have to uh, invest in people and not dispose of people because they are part of the population and they're gonna remain so. And so even if you don't believe that uh, on a humanitarian level, you should believe that uh, in terms of what's good for the community.
0: So I'm a political scientist by training, and that's kind of the way I, you know, come at a lot of issues. Just like, you know, I've talked to a lot of lawyers over the years, and lawyers have a particular way that they tend to think about the world as well. Right. You know, so but but I will say, I, I find nonpartisan elections confusing mm-hmm. in a way. Um, I know that you go through a partisan primary here in Ohio, and then we have these nonpartisan um, general elections uh, this November. So you don't have a platform exactly like somebody running for a legislative seat does, right? Correct. But you have a judicial approach and you've given this a lot of thought. So I just, I want to ask you, you know, how do you articulate the values that you bring to this position, but also are there any events or experiences or kind of how to, like, what have you seen? How has your life experience shaped how you then think about something like what a judge does?
1: So let me answer the part two of that. And and the answer to the part two of that is some, is from my youth, where I don't think that obviously at the time... I knew how it was going to shape me, but uh, when I was, you know, fairly young, uh, eleven years of age, um, I lost my father to addiction and suicide, Uh, and then I was, um, my mother, you know, was single for a while. I'm I'm a first generation uh, college student, first person to go to college, Mm -hmm. uh, obviously first person to go to law school, Uh, and and in my third year of law school, when I do, and I was always. Um, centered on criminal law, and and, and um, you, you know, seeing I, I, that was my draw. Um, you know, looking at uh, why people do the things they do. Yeah. Perhaps looking back at why did my father do some of the things that he did? And so there was that intense interest. And I, and I gained a mentor at Ohio state college of law, Bob Crevachet, who unfortunately is no longer with us. And he said, you know, you should be at the public defender's office um, where you're affecting people. And it it put me (laughs) this desire or something um, to stand next to somebody, uh, you know, on what is possibly the worst day of their life, Um, you know, to have somebody uh, there that cares about them. And so even now, um, you know, like doing, you know, murder cases or death penalty work, I have clients that, uh, you know, they're going to spend the rest of their lives in prison. Unfortunately, we know that Um, those are the consequences of their actions. But just to still have somebody That cares about that. That matters. That that matters to that. That I can sit with them and that they can know and believe that you know someone still cares about them and is invested in them, and and so that's sort of um, the emotional and moral trajectory I think uh, that led me this way. And so, in terms of uh, you know loosely termed platform, there are no former uh, Franklin County or no former public defenders on the bench for which I'm running. Um, We have prosecutors, uh, civil attorneys, uh, private attorneys who did some defense work, but no former public defenders. And in my mind-
0: Was that a tradition back in the day at any point that's kind of gone away or has no. it just been kind of a persistent- yeah.
1: yeah, it's quite persistent. There was one, and I and I hate to put a number of years on it because I may get it wrong, but I would say mm-hmm. 30 or so years ago, um, there was a public defender from my office appointed And then he was um, defeated in the election. And I don't, I can't speak with absolute accuracy, but I think that people have told me that he was portrayed as, you know, some radical and, uh, you know, to be feared by the establishment. Now in municipal court next door, um, the misdemeanor court, there are some former public defenders there doing some good work, but my bench, no. And so I just think it's that, you know, I mean, diversity of perspective is lacking in that regard. Um, and, and like I said, you know, I don't, I never, uh, as a child, you'll hear people say, oh, all I ever wanted to be was a judge. And and I honestly can't tell you that. All I ever wanted to be was somebody um, that was there for people when they needed me. And then now I feel like I'm needed on the bench just because we, we finally reached a point Where we're getting, I think people are more receptive. Um, You know, if there were a platform, my platform would essentially be that social justice and criminal justice are completely compatible. Uh, We can care and treat with compassion and still protect and serve the community. You know, that's that's essentially kind of the heart and soul of what I would like to bring with me to the bench.
0: So before you mentioned that there, I think your your exact words were some judges um, that don't use the tools they have to, you know, maximize that social justice or that caring approach um, when when possible. But are you talking about your opponent in some ways, or is that just a general kind of thought you have? Does that distinguish you in a way?
1: Uh, okay, so I'm not specifically speaking about my opponent because. She's not been on the bench very long. She was appointed by the governor about 16 or 17 months ago to fill the vacancy uh, when Judge Beatty was elected to the Court of Appeals. So um, it's a little bit hard to say because she, again, has not been there that long. Yeah. And there are judges up there um, that are. uh, Yes, that are are looking at restorative justice, that are looking at. new ways of doing things. I think that there there are two kinds of judges who don't. Um, there are judges who have been there a while and simply aren't used to that idea. Uh, and then there are other judges that simply lack the necessary judicial temperament um, to have that element of compassion. And, to, and that I literally, I, I, I feel I will stand in front of certain judges with a client uh, who has, you know, again, done something that he or she shouldn't have, you know, used drugs or whatever, but has shown up in court and is there. And and there's almost um, an anger uh, from the bench, again, as though that they're taking it personally. You know, how dare you disobey mm. me? Uh, and that's really uh, a dangerous judicial temperament and um, hopefully something that as we advance – Uh, And again, you know, I'm not, I'm not making, we have some judges who have been there a while or a long time who do great work, um, new judges who do great work. Some judges, uh, who I, you know, take issue with their judicial temperament. Um, so I, I think what I'm saying is I think I'm just adding, I'm hoping that that's the direction we're moving and I'm hoping that I can, uh, continue to advance that, um, you know, by adding my particular perspective to the bench.
0: And that's understandable, right? I mean, there's like a lot of different people taking a lot of different perspectives. Every case has its own unique components to it. But I also wonder, and I guess this is really my last question, which is you're entering into this um, this campaign um, at a time, not just with COVID, but also on the heels of the opioid crisis where There was a lot of talk about drug courts and about not taking a punitive approach to addiction, and I've always been a little skeptical that it was going to hold. You know, it seemed like there was a lot of attention from a lot of political leaders, like you know, we're going to do everything different. But I wonder how much that's true. Do you see yourself as kind of part of a group of people, let's say, who who get what? needs to happen just where we understand the limits of what a judicial system can do and let's say where public health starts like that relationship is that changing in an enduring way do you think or do you think it's really dependent on the individual person
1: uh, i think that's an excellent question and i want to believe that we're seeing a new way of doing things, and that we will see, we will reap the benefits and the award uh, rewards. And, and so uh, the judiciary will continue to move that way. But there will always be, uh, you know, one or two uh, people um, that are going to approach it differently. I mean, there are just people that, I mean, there's a fundamental element of compassion that you either bring to the bench or you don't. And obviously right now, you know, the message of, you know, restorative justice and and, and social justice is resonating, right? And so people are talking that talk. Uh, whether or not they continue to walk that walk, um, obviously I think goes to who they are fundamentally, you know, in the core of, of who they are, which is why it's so important, again, and, and I can't stress this enough, is When you go to vote, I mean, obviously, um, the top of the ticket's very important, but you're more likely, um, you know, to stand in front of a judge uh, than you are to, you know, perhaps be directly affected on a daily basis by someone higher up the ticket. So it's so important that you research who your judges are uh, and because it's nonpartisan, at least in terms of we're not designated on the ballot as who were who has endorsed us, which party has endorsed us, uh, you really have to explore that and make those decisions. You know about who do you believe is going to bring that element of compassion uh, and uh, healing <laughs> to the bench, uh, uh, rather than um, you know these uh, I don't want to say draconian because that's probably an overstatement, but. Mm -hmm. You know, in my estimation, uh, we know mass incarceration hasn't worked. Uh, We have to do something different. We have to, uh, you know, from a public health aspect, uh, we have to uh, promote the health and welfare of everybody in the community. And when we do that, everybody benefits. And so you have to put people on the bench that see that everybody's success, one individual's success is everybody's success and, and not see it as you know, I'm going to slap you on the hand for not having uh, done exactly what I needed you to do. Um, so right. I, I don't know right. if I've answered your question. I, I, I would say there is progress in that direction, but at the end of the day, you have got to look into your judicial candidates uh, and, and, you know, look into their hearts and minds and, you know, and see who, who would you like to stand in front of, um, you know, who, who would you like to tell your story to, you know, and, and choose that person.
0: No, it's really well put, and and it's it, it's a way of looking at the law that I would like to believe is becoming more, you know, common. I, I've heard some podcasts, uh, for example, the Serial podcast that looked at, at at Cleveland a little bit, and there just there there appear to be a few judges out there still who make it about them who like to showboat or, yes. you know, and and it's just really gross at a time when people's lives are at stake. You know.
1: Yes. And I'll tell you, and 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 not to run over, but quickly, you know, COVID has been really revealing, particularly in that regard, in terms of the level of compassion and perspective that judges have, in terms of which judges, you know, when we were locked down and not even able to go into the courthouse, we were still doing bond hearings um, via email uh, and, and over the phone. And which judges... Um, you know, we're prioritizing getting people, particularly low level nonviolent offenders out of jail, uh, you know, protecting that population, minimizing the exposure, you know, because the jail is obviously the worst place to be um, with, you know, contagious disease. And and those judges who uh, either didn't Care or didn't want to let them out, or were hostile to letting them out, or just were completely non-responsive to you. And so, I can tell you that COVID, uh, in so many in so many respects, uh, I think nationwide and, and at the courthouse, has really revealed people to be, I think, who they are fundamentally. Uh, that's been eye-opening.
0: Yeah, we've actually done two episodes now on the situations in Ohio prisons, and mm-hmm. um, it, it is eye-opening. And it's um, you know, I mean, it, it's like it's one of the places that just people still have a lot of assumptions about what they're about and don't really understand the first thing generally about what it's like inside of a prison and right. what life is like there and about the system around it. So, and and also what it does to families, right? You know.
1: And forgetting that they are human beings, they they're not numbers. They're not prison numbers. These are people, and like you said, they've got families. They have children waiting on them, uh, and and you and you have to hold on to that level of human compassion. Uh, we have to, as a society, uh, and you know, one, because once you lose that, you know, where are we really?
0: Well, Cheryl, thanks so much. This has been really great. I, I will just have to say because you know listeners are going to be wondering. Before we started recording, we had to usher your cat out because your cat was enthusiastic. <laughs> yes. But also, we have a parrot friend in the I'm room, so, so we sorry. have to. No, it's fine. This is great. It's humanizing. So, can you just tell us who who, who our friend is?
1: <laughs> that that's Benji. Uh, he's an African gray, and and this is the time of night that. Well, he, now he's only doing his sounds. He's not vocalizing. In the morning, he's very vocal because he has learned uh, to mimic me. So he it's uh, get your backpack, get your backpack. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, he calls the cats. Uh, he does his here kitty, kitty, kitty um, routine, <laughs> usually in the morning. Right now, he's just... Uh, testing his vocal range, which he likes to do at the evening. So it's
0: great. Well, we're glad to have Benji as well, and uh, Cheryl Munson. I thank you so much for <laughs> taking some time to talk with us, and you know, I wish you luck with your campaign.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: My many thanks to Cheryl Munson for joining me on the show. You can read more about Cheryl and her campaign by checking out the show notes, which are posted on WCBE's webpage at wcbe.org. It's under the podcast experience tab, as well as on our website at prognosisohio.com. We've also included links to Cheryl's campaign website and social media there. Prognosis Ohio is hosted by me, Dan Skinner, and produced by Dan Skinner and Mark France. Please take a minute to subscribe to the show. Follow us on Twitter at at @prognosisohio friend us on Facebook, and check out our new website at prognosisohio.com. Also, as I mentioned, mark down October 22nd in the evening for the live event we're going to be having, which is going to be something of a preview before the election comes in November. As always, we encourage you to reach out with your suggestions and your feedback. Thanks for listening and be well.